Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is BJ Neal. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be a part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systematically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today, we dive into part one of our episode with Josiah Haken. Josiah Haken is CEO of City Relief, a faith-based nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting those experiencing or at risk of homelessness to the resources they need to improve their lives. From growing up as the son of missionaries in Cameroon to leading hundreds of outreaches in the streets of New York City and New Jersey, Josiah has a unique perspective on the complexities of poverty and homelessness. Josiah is widely recognized as a subject matter expert when it comes to homelessness. He has led dozens of workshops and webinars with major organizations, corporations, and faith communities in NYC, New Jersey, and across the U.S. He is also one of the leading strategists for Don't Walk By, the largest annual volunteer-led outreach event to the homeless in New York City. He is also one of the leading strategists for Don't Walk By, the largest annual volunteer-led outreach event to the homeless in NYC. Josiah has a Master's of Arts in Ministry, Leadership, and Culture through Fresno Pacific University. In 2022, he published his first book, Neighbors with No Doors, The Truth About Homelessness and How You Can Make a Difference. Josiah, welcome. We are so happy to have you here. Working in the same organization and have you as a leader has been lovely, is what I've been asked to say. So you are at City Relief. Tell us your story about how did you end up doing what you do today? Yeah. So the short version is that I was born and raised in Yaoundé, Cameroon. My parents were missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators and just got to see different parts of the world and experience different cultures and obviously being in developing countries, lots of poverty. And then as a freshman in high school, moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, because Cameroon, Pennsylvania, same diff. No difference there, no culture shock whatsoever. But we did transition. It was a little bumpy, but ended up getting, falling in love with my high school sweetheart, got married at 19. She was a nurse. I was a salesperson, just kind of doing the American dream thing, trying to make money, survive, and just realized that that wasn't what I was called to do. Um, it just wasn't fulfilling. I would, I had this little back of the day with a little flip phone with a little red light on it. And whenever there was a red light, it meant that I had a message and I would, I would have so much anxiety about the message. I know someone was calling to complain about their countertop or their sink wasn't installed properly or their faucet was wrong. And I couldn't care less. 
Sorry if you're listening to this. And I sold you a kitchen. Uh, I care very deeply about your kitchen, just everybody else's. But I ultimately just realized that that's not for me. So we started looking for other ways to engage and sort of ended up migrating to New Jersey of all places and got connected to City Relief, then New York City Relief back in 2010. And mostly I just felt like this kind of work was, it just fit. Like my background in Cameroon, speaking French and then learning Spanish in high school and traveling. And it allowed me to fit in, in places like East Harlem in front of a, a African hair braiding salon mm -hmm. and in the South Bronx. And so I just fell in love and just kind of stuck and never left. So here I am. Yeah. With, and, and even let's just piggyback right on that. What are some other ways that the way you grew up and just your experience as a mission and like as a, a part of a missionary family, like this is what your family did. What are some other ways that you've been able to transfer for the way that you grew up into what you do today? Yeah. I mean, I, so there's a couple of things that come off, come to mind. One is just the, the appreciation for multi, like multicultural environments. Yeah. I mean, New York city is one of the most diverse places in the world. So I, as a, as a white guy in Cameroon, sort of being comfortable in that position and growing up, that's all I knew. I think now in this position, it allows me to sort of navigate different, uh, socioeconomic statuses and culture, cultures and languages and because I would see that with my parents, like they would, they would be ministering and, and hanging out with a local Cameroonian family. And then they would get invited to the embassy and they would like meet, have to meet with the local politicians and navigate. So there's this, this dynamic sort of reality that you get in that sort of environment where you can kind of fit in, sort of be a global citizen, yeah. um, which definitely helps. I think also just an appreciation for the, you know, the humanity of different people like people who are not the, the same as I am and recognizing that actually I'm not the same as they are. It's not just the other way around. Yeah. And so there is no, you, it's really hard to like, uh, to stereotype or stigmatize someone else. If you can see yourself in them, yeah. even if you don't look the same. And so I think that has helped me appreciate the value that homeless people have beyond just their circumstances because of my experience growing up in that environment. So, and I also think my parents deserve a lot of credit. I mean, I was the youngest of four, so I got away with murder. I mean, I was like the kid they forgot about. They're like, oh, which one, two, three, who are we missing? Um, <laughs> so, but I think I had a lot of independence as a kid, as a result of that. And I think that also allowed me to kind of grow up pretty quick. And so just navigating those kinds of things, like in learning about New York and learning about the system and learning about how to navigate donor relationships with volunteer relationships with homeless people. I think of my parents demonstrated, a, a you know, an ability to be flexible and nimble. Yeah. So those are two things that come to mind. So you were talking about growing up with parents as missionaries and Whitcliffe Bible translators and kind of this faith background that you have. And I know that being a person of faith yourself is part of your story. So talk about the intersection of you as a person of faith and that relationship that you have with God and the work that you do in the unhoused community. How has one influenced the other or spoken to the other? How have those kind of meshed? Yeah, I mean, I, I can honestly say that my experience with the divine or my experience with God has been the most visceral, the most experiential when I'm in the street 
when I'm talking to someone. So for one quick story is, uh, I remember I was on early on, I was in Harlem and I was talking to this guy who, um, he had one eye the other, eye had a big scar down his face and he was like really just like weathered and quiet. And he was wearing a big coat. It was probably, so it was probably winter time, but sometimes people wear big coats during the summer when they're homeless because that's what they do. But I walked up to him and I was like, Hey, like, would it, you know, is there anything I can get you? Is there anything I can help you with? And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And I said, well, you know, can I pray for you? And he said, no, but I want to pray for you. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So that's, yeah. sounds great. Again, I'm flexible. Was able to adapt, turn that corner. Yeah, absolutely. Pray for me, please. And then he just, he said, okay, let's pray. And so I kind of, I, he was on a chair and I was sort of kneeling down next to him because I was trying to talk eye to eye level with him. We didn't have very many chairs back then. That's my propensity to insist that we have enough chairs. And he looked, he closed his one eye. That was good. And he recited Psalm 23. He just, know the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And he recited the whole chapter. And it was this moment where I'm, I'm sitting there and just like all of a sudden in this holy place, this sacred space on a sidewalk in Harlem, you know, surrounded by pigeons and trains thundering overhead. The solution to homelessness can seem overwhelming, but we are on the ground every day doing our part. You can do your part by leaving us a comment and review. Share this episode with a friend and you can start to shift the narrative around homelessness. For me, my faith... I believe so, you know, as we read in the scripture in like, for example, one of the big verses is Matthew 25 is a section of this, the scripture in the new Testament, where Jesus refers to people who are struggling, people who are hungry, thirsty, naked, imprisoned as brothers and sisters of mine. And he says, whatever you have done for one of my brothers or sisters, you've done to me. And so for me, experiencing folks in deep deep poverty in Cameroon and seeing how that intersected with my parents' faith and seeing how the scriptures that I'm reading are coming alive to me through this one-eyed dude on the sidewalk really brought to life what I believe to be a, a very experiential faith. So that's why for me, I mean, I, I, yeah, we're not, I would, I love working with anybody regardless of their faith background or regardless of what they think about, you know, religion and, and stuff. But for me personally, and for our organization, it's really a, it, it makes serving the homeless a very sacred mm-hmm. act because now if, if I believe that Jesus is the personification of God, is the fullness of God, and Jesus identifies with someone who is struggling financially or, in the, or traumatized or in poverty, then there is a direct correlation, almost becomes a math problem where like if you, if A equals B uh, and B equals C, then A equals C. And so, you know, if I'm A, Jesus is B and the homeless person is C, it's like there's, it becomes this intersection of like, oh, I get to experience Jesus through this person, which means that they are no longer just this sort of cast off or charity case or needy person. There's actually a sacred element to their very being that I can tap in. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. It's almost like um, you're saying that God is calling us to kind of level the playing field a bit, right? Between us or the other human. Or the playing field's already leveled. 
And we have to recognize to acknowledge that that's true. And I also heard you, you were saying that you hunker, you were like hunkered down the sidewalk talking to this person so you could be at eye level. I heard you say you need enough chairs for people to sit in. So talk about what is important in city relief of those kinds of things, of getting an eye level, of having a chair for a person and kind of how that's ingrained in the work that you do. Yeah. Again, and it really, it, it really hit me doing the outreach because I started off just doing outreach. That's how I started in 2010 is just leading, driving the bus. Literally my first day, they gave me a, a keys to the bus and a map to the location I was driving to. And so that was my, my training. It was, it was me and one other staff member in the South Bronx for four hours. It was, it was quite an adventure, but what I saw is that People have a tendency to treat homeless folks as though they deserve what they get. So the, way, the other way to frame that is like, I, I have two little kids and I know when my daughter was in preschool, she's my oldest, um, she's 10 now, but when she was in preschool, I remember her learning the expression, you get what you get and you don't get upset. That's a, a preschool lesson. You get what you get and you don't get upset, which is a very valuable lesson to a preschooler. But what I've found is that people treat homeless adult like preschoolers. You get what you get and you don't get upset. And that never made any sense to me because I'm going, these are, if this can, if this is an, a, 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 an example of the divine, if this is a, a representation of my Lord, the, yeah. the God I serve, then it's actually not a, this isn't a preschooler who gets what they get and don't get upset. This is a person who deserves my dick. So I started training volunteers to wipe down the cups before serving them. I tried to, I noticed that the, the, the place we were having people sit on, like the, when I first started, there, it was not uncommon for us to put buckets out for people to sit on. And I was wondering why we have people sitting on buckets. And one of the reasons I was given, I don't remember who gave it to me, but one of the reasons was because they were worried about people hitting other people in with chairs, a la WWE. They were worried. Like, so they were, we were, we were giving them buckets. Buckets aren't legal. Exactly. But chair on the other hand. Chairs, totally dangerous, you know, lethal weapons. Yes. So, and it just doesn't make sense. Like, I'm going like, what are we, what are we doing here? So I started like, again, just by being there with, and, and once you identify with like people as friends, as peers, as brothers and sisters, you're not going to give them a bucket. You're not going to like give them this lousy, like soup that's cold or drinks that are warm. So we just started shifting. I mean, and again, City Relief, New York City Relief has always been founded on it. So I'm not trying to pick on those early days. They were, to act, and a lot of it had to do with finances, honestly. They just didn't have the money at the time to sure. do, to get a nice chair. 100. So it wasn't just about neglect. And yeah. I mean, the organization, like the, I'm, I'm mentored by our founder. <laughs> so I can tell you that this has been instilled in the organization since day one. Yeah. But it is also true that for me personally, it became about by doing the work of outreach, it became very real in terms of identifying ways that as an organization, how do we communicate dignity and how do we communicate value to people by not just offering us their left, like offering them our leftovers, but actually offering them our best. This podcast is sponsored by City Relief. We are a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. And so everything we do at City Relief is geared towards that. 
So we want to offer the best quality soup. We want to offer the best socks in the world. We want to offer the highest quality services. We want to get the community partners who are completely in on helping people in the most efficient way. Yeah. And so we are cultivating a space. One of my favorite descriptions is from Erwin uh, McManus, a pastor out in LA who describes himself as a cultural architect. And I love that image of we are cultural architects where we are, we are crafting and designing a space where people who are often ignored and dehumanized can actually be treated like valued paying customers and we can acknowledge their value. And by setting that bar, they can then rise to that bar and we can start seeing people believe in themselves again, that they do have value and maybe their life is worth pursuing. So as an organization, that's the context that we're trying to, trying to craft. So Josiah, just wanting to shift gears a little bit. We've been, me and you have been talking quite a bit over the last two years while I've been in this organization about the looming and now very much present housing crisis. If you could just talk a little about the housing crisis, what is the housing crisis? And then as our CEO, how are you positioning City Relief to be able to be a part of solving this problem? So the housing crisis in a nutshell is we live in a very expensive city. I mean, right now, homelessness in cities across America are particularly the cost of living is skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. So on one, in, in one sense, the housing crisis is in part a result of rising costs and just la like supply and demand. Mm -hmm. People with money want to live in New York, they can pay for it. So they're pricing out people who are lower income. So like gentrification, for example, you know, there's neighborhoods now that are very swanky that just 10 years ago were not so much because the neighborhoods have shifted. Um, part of the problem also is that our government on a federal level has not made very significant investments in building affordable housing since like the seventies. So there is this large, there was this, there hasn't been an increase in supply for housing for people who are lower and middle income. Right. So that there's just been, there's a shortage and, and there's a very interesting New York times article that, that came out a little while ago about how there's this element of afford of, of affordable housing where the government in like the seventies incentivized builders to build low income housing by si signing like a 30 year agreement where these folks would have low income, offer low income housing in these buildings, and they would get significant tax breaks, significant incentives. So for 30 years, they could, they would provide affordable housing. The problem was at the 30 year mark, those people were then free as part of the agreement to then do whatever they want with their units. So they could actually get, they can stop providing, they could actually, the, the pricing of the, of the rentals actually would be significantly limited for 30 years. So what hap what's happening now for the housing crisis is that there is, there are more affordable housing units that are disappearing every day faster than there are units being built. So the supply and demand problem is that even the supply that was doesn't, even if the government started building in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units, which they're not as, as currently, but even if they were, they're racing against the gravitational pull of all of these expiring contracts yeah. 
So the housing stock of low-income rentals is actually going down. Even So even while the government's saying we're going to build more. So there's this, it's a perfect storm in that sense. From a, but that was even before COVID. So enter COVID, this pandemic, where a lot of people, you know, split, the, left the cities who had options to leave, but leaving behind a lot of people who, you know, did not have the options to leave. And since that, there was this eviction moratorium that was put in place that stopped people from being kicked out of their homes. But there, the backlog of people in their rents because they lost their jobs and they weren't able to pay, you know, get, get income just grew and grew and grew. So now there was like, almost think of like a balloon that you're just putting more air into air into, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger without anywhere to go. Eventually it'll pop. If you live in New York or New Jersey or technically anywhere, and you'd like to volunteer with us, click on the link in the description of this episode. My concern is that what we're seeing is the perfect storm of the of a balloon that's popping, where the lack of supply, yeah. the expiring units, yeah. the rising rental costs, because yeah. we've seen rents go up in cities, up, up almost up to 40% increases in rent over the last year. And then you have a lot of these bigger real estate companies that are actually buying up homes as investment properties. Yeah. So it's just, it's just a mess. So in a nutshell, which is not, with a huge nutshell, No, but that's the housing price. Yes. No, but this is, this is really good because right now you're describing what sounds like an overall issue with our system that has existed for quite some time in reality, mm -hmm. but it's just now beginning to fully, like the ramifications of it are really beginning to play out at this point, right? So you've got affordable housing, the last real boom in building affordable housing was in the seventies from what you're saying. And it's not like the population numbers have dwindled or for frozen during that time. So you've got a rising population. You've got only the, what was built in the seventies, seventies really for the most part to, you know, pull from. And then now the people who built those buildings, a lot of those contracts are changing. They have no reason to keep them the way they are. And there's no incentive like there was in the seventies for anybody to either continue on or to build something new with the same kind of incentive. Right. So we're really, we're talking about the city is by technicality gradually losing its affordable housing yeah. at this point. It's going backwards. Right. So it's going backwards. And the problem of homelessness is just getting there. That's wow. So, yeah. wow. And we did not expect that there would be 400,000 people right now being sued for eviction because there was a moratorium for it because of right. COVID yeah. and people losing their jobs mm -hmm. Then give a pause. And all of a sudden now, all of these people, and where are they going? And yeah. so- we're going to see a big surge in the numbers of homeless as well. Yep. And then on just to make things extra fun, we look at the polarization of our government systems and infrastructure where we would compromise and build it like so left and right arguing with each other and not actually finding any solutions that meets any criteria. So there's also this element of this is the problem. No, no, this is the problem. So we're going to solve this problem on, when, when we're in power, but they're, they're gonna, that's not the problem. We're going to stop you from solving that problem. And then you get, and then they switches and this person get this group gets in power and they says, we're going to address this problem. And these people say, no, you can't solve. That's not the real problem. We're going to stop you from solving that problem. And then no problems get solved. And meanwhile, the people in the street and the people who are suffering are sitting here going, well, what about us? We're, 
we have to live, we, you know, we, and, and so that's where it gets really messy in terms of providing real services to people with very limited resources. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Or do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.